Well, welcome. My name is Andrew, and I am so blessed to get to be the senior pastor here at Reese Church. And if you're new today, I especially want to welcome you. I love that you've made today a part of your week. I want to take this opportunity to welcome our online community as well. Each and every week, those of you who tune in faithfully from all over the country, all over the world, that are a part of what God is doing at Reach Church. Let me invite you up front to grab your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today, we're going to be in chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to raise your hand and allow one of our ushers to bring you a Bible. They're going to come around our worship center right now, slip up your hand and let them know that you'd like a Bible. These Bibles are a gift from our church to you. They're yours to have and to keep. Yesterday, Stacy, my wife, and I had the privilege of going to a couple of graduation parties. As we were talking about how fast life takes place, how quickly children grow up, talking to some of the parents of these graduates, we began to reflect on our own lives and how next year we'll have a senior in high school. In fact, we have another child that was just singing up here on stage. She'll be a sophomore next year. And we began to process just how quickly things have evolved in our family. But it took us all the way back to when our son, our oldest son was born. It was an interesting experience, unlike anything that either one of us was really prepared for. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your life where there was an occasion or an occurrence that took place that you were not expecting. That, that no matter how much you had prepared for, it was nothing like you were prepared for. I'll give an example. In August, my son was born in September. In late August, my wife began to have, at the time, we had no idea what it was called. Now we know they're called Braxton Hicks. Any, any mother who knows what I'm talking about, Braxton Hicks, or you've had them, or you've been around somebody that has them, you know that they're, they're, they, they mimic the contraction preparing for labor, and they're just the contraction of muscles. Well, Stacy was standing at church, and we were talking to a friend of ours who had just had a baby of her own. And as we were talking, Stacy said, well, I've got this weird kind of contraction-y things going on in my stomach. And she said, oh yeah, you're in labor. You should really go to the hospital. And I'm standing next to Stacy, and of course, in my mind, having never done this, I'm panicked. And we need to go and grab the bags and get ready to go to the hospital. And Stacy said, well, they don't really hurt that bad. It just, they're just kind of uncomfortable. I just feel like my stomach's getting really tight and letting up. And she said, oh, that's exactly how it was for me, honey. You're in labor. You need to go to the hospital. Well, we run home. We grab all the things, everything that we had pre-planned and packaged to take with us. And we get to the hospital. And as we are admitted into the maternity wing, the nurse comes in. And Stacy's there and they're getting her set up with the Doppler radar. And they're checking all the, I don't know what it's really called, but that's all I think of. And they're checking for heartbeat and motion and everything else, looking at vitals. And Stacy's having these contractions or these Braxton Hicks. And the nurse comes in and we're sitting there excited to get this going and everything else. And she comes in and she checks Stacy out. And she says, well, on a scale of one to 10, what is your pain level? And Stacy, again, having no prior experience to this, doesn't know what she doesn't know, you know? And she says, well, probably a 10. <laughs> the nurse walks out, closes the curtain, not the door, closes the curtain, and can hardly wait to tell her colleagues. And we hear as though she was sitting inches from our face. If that woman thinks that's a 10, she's got another thing coming. <laughs> I promise you. I promise you. Stacy was scared to death. Grabbed my hand, looked at me like, what, is, what did you do to me? What is happening? <laughs> Long story short. The doctor comes in and evaluates and says, well, honey, you're not really in labor. You're, these are Braxton Hicks and explains the whole thing to us. And so we get up and we go home and Stacy's a little embarrassed, but more afraid based on the comment of that amazing nurse, <laughs> tremendous bedside manner, first mom, first time expecting a child. So another week goes by. And now she's having Braxton Hicks again, but they're, they've intensified. Now she's got a bit of a back labor and she's really not feeling good. And so we're confused and concerned and don't know what to do. Well, I say, you know, let's just, let's give it a shot. So we go into the hospital. This time we're there for hours, plural. And they're trying to help labor along the way. In fact, we walked a marathon in the hospital. I'd never anything like it. I mean, they got her hooked up to all these things and we're walking around and she's, I'm, I'm carrying her and I, she might've been carrying me. I don't remember, but we're walking. 
around the halls trying to induce labor, and they put her in this hot tub. And, and I think, what kind of resort is this? We're here to have a baby. And, and they, they do this whole thing. And after hours of sitting there, there was no progression. They sent us home again. Stacy was absolutely disappointed, completely confused, nothing at all like we had expected. So September 8th comes. We are at a McDonald's. We're sitting there having dinner, and all of a sudden, Stacy's got these intense pains. And I said, I said, well, somebody just said McDonald's does it. Yeah. <laughs> Casserole oil and McDonald's. We're sitting there, and I said, Stacy, we really should go to the doctor. She says, no shot. I said, honey, you feel miserable, right? Like, I think you feel miserable. You look miserable, but I'm not supposed to say that. And where she said, I'm not going. I am not going. I'm, I'm going to have this. I'm not going. No shot. You're not taking me at all. And she, it's getting more and more intense, and she's more and more uncomfortable, and they're getting closer and closer together. So then we go to leave, and she stands up. We get out into the parking lot, and she's refusing to go. And her water breaks in the parking lot. And I said, Stacy, either you just peed your pants or you're in labor. We are going to the hospital. Do you know what she made me do? She made me take her home first. She said, I am not having this baby without shaving my legs. I am not making this up. I said, you what? We went home, she shaved her legs, we got the bags, we got to the hospital, and when she knew it, we had a baby. We had a baby. It was all about shaving the legs. I asked her permission. I usually don't ask permission to share stories uh, because I usually don't think about them in advance. And then I usually say, I'm sorry, afterward, I asked permission. And she said, oh, it's, you know, 18 years ago this September. It is what it is. It's just part of life. But we had this preconceived idea of what pregnancy and labor and birth was going to be. Probably because of some of the books we'd read or the movies we'd seen. We didn't take any of those Lamaze classes, learning how to breathe or anything like that. But learning from other people about their experiences, their expectations, their outcomes, we had this preconceived idea of what this experience was going to be for us. And it turned out to be nothing at all like we had expected it to be. And I think a lot of times in our lives, a lot of times in our faith journey, we have this idea in our minds about what being a Christian is going to be like. And sometimes it doesn't turn out at all like we think it's going to be. But today we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 10. We've been going through this study through the entire book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to learn from a lot of different camps that the person that God appoints as king over Israel, Israel's first king, isn't at all what people were expecting. Father, I pray that as we jump together into your word today, that your word would come alive. Lord, I pray that you redeem our time. Use it for our good and, and your glory. Lord, I am convinced that we superimpose our own ideologies and expectations on way too much in life. And we come to you all too often with closed fists. And I pray today that not only would you open our hands, but that you would open up our hearts and open up our eyes so that we could encounter you and our lives would be changed forever. And Father, I pray now the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be received as a gift to you alone, Lord. Amen. By way of context, last week, if you didn't get a chance to watch the message, I'd encourage you to go do that. We left off where Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, is having an identity crisis. God has given Samuel the prophet, the judge, and the priest this word that Saul will become Israel's first king. You see, the nation of Israel has moved away from a theocracy where God was their king, and they are demanding a monarchy like all the surrounding nations where man will serve them as their king. And as Samuel comes into contact with Saul in a supernatural manner, very antithetical to how God prepares Samuel to present this new call on Saul's life, Saul begins to explain 
to Samuel how he got it wrong. How there's no way because he was of the smallest tribe in Israel and that he was the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Samuel continues to press Saul on this issue. It's nothing at all like he expected it would be. And after staying the night at Samuel's house, he gets ready to go back to his home along with his servant. They had been out looking for his father's goats that had gotten away, or donkeys, excuse me. And as they were on their road, Samuel stops Saul and he says, I want to send your servant out ahead. I've got a word for you from the Lord. And that's where we pick up today, chapter 10, verse 1. Something unique is about to happen, something that Saul didn't expect at all. It was nothing like he thought it would be. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. Saul had no idea what to expect. He was out just looking for his father's donkeys with his father's servant. He grew increasingly concerned that his dad was worried about where they were and the fact that they hadn't found the donkeys. And Samuel gives him a word that it's going to be okay. The donkeys have been found. Don't worry about it. But I've got something special I need to share with you. I need to prepare your heart for what you're about to receive. And then this amazing transformation takes place, an experience that is going to set the course for the nation of Israel for the rest of humanity for all time. It's an anointing. An anointing is something that is unique. It's, a, it's an outward expression of a supernatural experience in this case. God has supernaturally appointed Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, the nation of Israel, to be Israel's first king. And he's preparing him in a variety of ways. And he has no idea what to expect and certainly nothing like this. Now, oil was not uncommon. They would take oil pressed from olives and they would pour it over their heads and allow it to run down their beard as, a, as an outward expression. It was a physical representation of being set apart. In, in, in our common kind of practice today, moms, I want you to think of it this way. The, the, the olive oil and anointing was like your, your china. It has a separate cupboard and it only came out for special occasions. And when that china comes out, everybody knows that this is a big deal. Saul doesn't necessarily know the, the length of what is about to take place, but he realizes that this is unique, that this is special. The second thing that takes place here is that Samuel kisses Saul as royalty. This is a sign of loyalty. He is signifying physically that he is committed to Saul as his king. Now imagine, if you will, how Saul is feeling about this. This is all brand new to him. He was just out looking for his dad's donkeys. Verse 2, Saul says, when you leave me today, you're going to see two men beside Rachel's tomb at Zelza on the border of Benjamin. They will tell you that the donkeys have been found and that your father has stopped worrying about them and is now worried about you. He's asking, have you seen my son? When you get to the Oak of Tabor, you will see three men coming toward you who are on their way to worship God at Bethel. One will be bringing three young goats and another will have three loaves of bread and the third will be carrying a wineskin full of wine. They will greet you and offer two of the loaves which you are to accept. Verse five, when you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship. They will be playing a harp and a tambourine, a flute and a lyre, and they will be prophesying. And at that time, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. And after these signs take place, do what you must do for God is with you. Then go down to Gilgal ahead of me and I'm gonna join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. Now we're going to go back over this a little more in detail, but I want us to understand that there are four prophecies that Samuel is giving Saul, four signs that are going to validate this unique calling on Saul's life. This isn't haphazard. It's not Samuel finding the guy who stands head and shoulders above everyone else or the best looking in all of the tribes of Israel to be the king. 
what he's doing is a supernatural explaining of how God has brought Saul into this place. And it's nothing at all like he had expected. God's giving him these signs to expect, and he lays them out clearly. He, he gives them four things to be looking for. And let's talk about some of the uniqueness of each one of these four signs for just a moment. Starting back at verse 3 with me, he, he, he tells them, I'm sorry, verse 2. When you leave me today, you will see two men beside Rachel's tomb in Zelza. So now we're looking at specific locations. He's taking the guesswork out of where this is going to happen. It's on the border of Benjamin. And these two, these two men beside Rachel's tomb are going to tell you that the donkeys have been found and that your father has stopped worrying about them and is now worried about you. He's asking, have you seen my son? So the first of the four signs is going to be this relational equity between the father and his son that is going to be expressed by two men who are standing behind Rachel's tomb in Zelza. The second begins in verse 3. It's again another physical Example of where this is going to happen. When you get to the Oak of Tabor, you'll see three men coming towards you who are on their way to worship God at Bethel. One's going to be bringing three young goats and another will have three loaves of bread. And the third will be carrying a wineskin full of wine. They will greet you and offer you two of the loaves which you are to accept. These three men are on their way up to public worship. Two types of sacrifices. One is a burnt offering and the other one is a grain or a peace offering. The loaves of bread represent the peace offering that are going to be sacrificed between God and in representation of community with, with man. And Samuel's telling Saul, you need to be prepared. You've seen things like this before, but this is going to be a little bit different. It's not just your ordinary men on their way to do ordinary things. This is supernatural. And I want you to be ready. They're going to offer you two loaves of bread, very specific. And your responsibility is to take it. That signifies that God has got something unique in store for you and that you are willing to accept what God has in front of you. And then he goes on to say, talking about verse 5, when you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you'll meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship. They will be playing a harp and a tambourine and a flute and a lyre, and they will be prophesying. Prophesying is truth-telling. Prophesying is, is admonishing and encouraging on behalf of the Lord. And the thing I love about this expression is it shows us very early on the nature and the value add of the expression of musical worship. You see, music does a few different things. It helps us emotionally connect with God. It helps us intellectually prepare for what we're reading and what we're saying or what we're singing but it also creates an on-ramp for us to verbally and physically express our commitment and our love and our admiration to God. And that's not new, unique to us. Russell and Terrence and the team led us in worship this morning with the playing of instruments to prepare our hearts to ready us so that we could receive God's word in part the reality of why we do what we do as expressions of worship, why we have music up front, because we realize that a lot of times people coming in have distractions. There are things that have happened on your way here. There are things that have happened the week before. There are things that have got your mind derailed and you're not necessarily focused like you want to be. And so by introducing music, we're creating a platform and an avenue to allow the doctrine and the theology of the songs but the person, the character, the nature of God to sweep over us and for us to give an on-ramp for all of us mutually to collectively as well as individually sing out our praises, our adorations, our anthems to God. It's not new, new to us or unique to us, but it is important part of worship. And I love that that is the third part of the four signs or prophecies that Samuel is giving Saul. It's a preparation for encountering God. And in verse 6, it says, At that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. We're going to explore that more in verse 9. And after these things take place, do what you must be done, for God is with you. What does it mean, do what must be done? What he's saying there isn't do whatever you want to do. What he's saying is do what God has rightly appointed you for. As king of Israel, there are going to be tasks and responsibilities that you have laid out in front of you. You have the power and the authority and the presence of God to do what you must do. 
I, I think this would be an amazing metric for each and every one of us as we head into our weeks. Knowing that we have the fullness of the Spirit of God in our lives that empowers us to do what we must do. Not what we want to do, but what God has assigned us to do, what he's uniquely called and prepared and equipped and now commissioned us to do. This is incredible because Saul, imagine, this guy's just out looking for his dad's donkeys and now he's king of Israel. He's still got the oil dripping off his beard. What do you mean do what I must do? I don't know how to be a king. We've never had a king in Israel. I mean, I know how the Ammonites do it and I know how the Philistines do it. I know how the Amalekites do it. I've seen and I've heard other nations, but I have no idea how to be king over anybody. And remember, he's got this, this, this leadership dysmorphia. He doesn't think highly of himself at all. He's not just fishing for compliments, hoping that Samuel will throw more his way. He literally says, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Who am I? I'm the smallest of all the tribes in Israel. I'm the least of these. He doesn't see things the way that, that God sees them. And he's not prepared, at least in his person, to do what God's called him to do. Can I just tell you this morning that I think that's actually one of the best places for all of us to get to, for us to realize that we are ill-prepared to be the kinds of individuals that God is calling us to be outside of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're relying on our own strengths, on our own understandings, on our own experiences. Do you know how limiting those are? I don't care if you're an expert in your field. Let me tell you something. There's always somebody better than you. And so if we're relying on our strengths, on our education, and on our experiences, we will always be limited, and the outcome will never look like we think it should look. But through the power and the presence, the supernatural power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it changes everything. It's a game changer. I love this expression that Samuel gives to Saul, and he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be prophesying, and you're going to have a new heart. You're going to have a changed life. You're going to be a different person. Verse 7, after these signs take place, do what you must do for God is with you. You're able to do what you're called to do because of God. Verse 8, then go down to Gilgal ahead of me and I'll join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. That was part of his priestly duties. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. If you want, write in the margins of your Bible the number seven. And under that or next to that, write the word complete. Throughout the Bible, the number seven represents something that is complete. What Samuel is preparing for Saul is to understand that when they go to take part in this public act of worship through the burnt offerings and the grain offerings, that it's going to be time, that it's going to be complete. It's going to be ready. He's telling him to get ready. Now, verse nine is a culmination of all these prophecies being fulfilled. But verse nine is actually my favorite part of this text. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. That word heart in the Hebrew language, which is the original text of the Old Testament, is lab. And lab literally means the mind, the will, and the emotions of an individual. It's the epicenter of mankind. And I want to talk about why he says you'll be a new person with a new heart. Because in the epicenter, it actually has effects on all of us. It affects, it affects our, our physiological bodies. It affects how we feel about things, how, how we experience things. It affects our brains, how we think about things, how we relate to things. It affects our spiritual lives how we see ourselves in light of the person of God at work in us, and it, 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 it affects our social lives. It changes how we interact with one another. When you allow God, in, let me say it this way. You see, Samuel had given Saul these prophecies, these four signs to look forward to. And the next thing that Saul does is he steps out of his position and into faith. 
He steps out in obedience into these things that Samuel has prepared for him to do. And as he steps out of the way of himself and into the will of God, God changes his heart, his mind, his will, and his emotions. And it will affect everything, and not just for him, but for all Israel. You see, that is why we exist as a church. To be a community where people encounter Jesus and their lives are changed forever. When we encounter the life-saving love of God through the person of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, it changes everything. Now on the surface, we, we may go back to the same house with the same wife and the same family and the same jobs. But nothing about our lives should be the same. It should affect and impact everything around us. And I love that Saul, though he didn't know what to expect, takes the very first step of faith and God changes this person, Saul, into a new man by giving him a new heart. And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. Verse 10, when Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming down toward them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy, telling truths. When those who knew Saul heard about it, I want you to lean into this text just a little closer. Look at verse 11. When those who knew Saul, the use of that word knew is past tense. But it impacts the way people think about Saul. When those who knew Saul had heard about it, they exclaimed, what? Is even Saul a prophet? How did the son of Kish become a prophet? And one of those standing there said, can anyone become a prophet no matter who his father is? So that is the origin of the saying, is even Saul a prophet? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. And the first has to do with the priestly line. It was the priests and the prophets that would prophesy. And they were from the line of Aaron. Saul was the son of Kish, who was a Benjamite. He wasn't born into the role of, of prophet or, or, or priest. What is he doing acting like something he's not? Uh, you see, they look even closer. They begin to examine the life of Saul, the people that knew Saul, that knew his behaviors, that knew about the way he talked, that knew about the way he interacted with people, how he treated people, that knew about how he saw life, including how he felt about himself, how he even spoke about himself, the mistakes that he had made, the inadequacies and the shortcomings. All that Saul was, all that people thought that they knew about Saul, they allowed to influence their ideas of this person. They were not concerned with the fact that God had changed his heart, that God had given him a new life. All they could see was the history, not what was in front of them, not the future. One of the things that paralyzes our present where God has us right now is holding on to our past or living in fear of our future. So long as you and I are holding on to our past or living in fear of our future, the enemy knows that we will never experience the fullness of God at work in us right here and now. Can anybody relate with that this morning? I spent some time with a friend this week who's a psychologist. And we talked about this very thing. And he gave me this beautiful word picture. He drew it out for me, and he said, the way that we look at life is we have this circle that represents our past. And then very linearly, we draw an arrow to our present. And then linearly from there, we draw another arrow in a circle to our future. 
But the reality is we'll never arrive at our future because we'll never experience the fullness of our present because we're so embattled with our past. He said, I want to take these from this parallel and I want to flip them upside down. And I want to show you what it looks like vertically moving together. Past, present, and future. The past is gone. The present hasn't come, or the, the, the future hasn't come yet. The present is where we're at. And when we can understand what it looks like to live in the presence of where God has us now, it changes how we see our past and it informs how we step into our future. So good. So good. Some of us have never known the fullness of our faith because we're, we're still so caught up reminding God of how messed up we are. Some of us will never know the fullness of our faith in the present because we're so afraid of the future. If we spent the amount of energy and effort consumed or concerned with where God has us here and now, rather than being consumed about things that haven't come yet, and we're speculating. The amount of conversation that I hear people having all the time about speculating, what's going to happen to the stock market? Is doggy coin really going to be the future cryptocurrency? I mean, after all, Elon Musk just endorsed it on Saturday Night Live last night. You better buy in now because we're going to get rich quick off of this. Just found about a doctor in Nebraska that is now getting paid in Dogecoin, cryptocurrency. I don't care. Is it the end times? Are we really at the end times? I, I, I saw a video yesterday talking about Revelation and the four angels and the year of desertedness. And this person said the four, the four angels of death are Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson. I mean, he went through this whole thing. And I'm like, how far down do you have to dig in that well to come up with that crap? And I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on. Some of you are going to get the vaccine and some of you don't. My point is, if we spent even a fraction of the amount of energy and effort that we do forecasting the future, living in our presence, how much more joy would we experience in the fullness of Christ? Amen. The enemy is robbing you and the enemy is robbing me of knowing the fullness of our faith right now because he's got us hung up on our past or forecasting our future. And what I'm telling you is that people are a big part of the problem. So start filtering your friends. No, I'm serious. Start creating margin with the voices that you allow to speak into your life. Saul, Saul in the words of Taylor Swift is surrounded with people who are going to hate, 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 hate. <laughs> and we're going to see in verse 27 his response. He's going to shake it off. But, but I could not, even though I'm making light of it, I could not be more serious about what I'm saying right now. When we experience a changed heart and a changed life because of the, the supernatural power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it doesn't mean that God has changed the way people around us see us. They still see the person that got divorced. They still see the person that had the bender last week. They still see the person that has a foul mouth. They still see the person that drives like an idiot. They still see the person that doesn't manage their finances well. They still see the person that is known more because of what they're against than what they're for. They still see the person who made the mistakes in high school and in college and all of that. And one of the biggest detractors of people living out their faith is what others see, not what God sees. But all of those others have no bearing on your eternity. So why are you living based on what they see? Who cares what they see? Who cares what they see? These people look at Saul and they, they come up with a couple of examples. Well, you can't be prophesying because you don't have the right daddy. You don't come from the right family. You see, you got to have the right family in order to do what you're doing. You don't belong here, Saul. You don't belong here. And we know who you are, Saul. We, we, we know, Saul, uh, the son of Kish, the Benjamite, who you are, the mistakes you've made. What are you doing here? Verse 12. 
And one of those standing there said, can anyone become a prophet no matter who his father is? Now he's making a mockery of it all. Verse 13, when Saul had finished prophesying, he went up to the place of worship. Where have you been? Saul's uncle asked him and his servant. We were looking for the donkeys, Saul replied, but we couldn't find them. And so we went to Samuel to ask him where they were. Oh, and what did he say? His uncle asked. Well, he told us that the donkeys had been found, Saul replied, but Saul didn't tell his uncle what Samuel said about the kingdom. He didn't introduce himself as the king of Israel. He was still caught up in how he saw himself rather than who God said he was. Verse 17 tells us that later Samuel called all the people of Israel to meet before the Lord at Mizpah. Mizpah is one of the four geographical cities where Samuel would execute his priestly duties and would do his judiciary responsibilities or judicial responsibilities, excuse me, in Mizpah. And he called together, this is very common, he would call together all the tribes, all the peoples of Israel, and as a prophet was going to give a word from God to the nation of Israel. This would not have been a surprise to them. The word will be a big surprise, but gathering together was not. This was common for the nation of Israel. And he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, has declared. I brought you out of Egypt and rescued you from the Egyptians and from all of the nations that were oppressing you. But though I've rescued you from your misery and distress, you've rejected your God today and have said, no, we want a king instead. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and clans. So now he is subdividing the nation of Israel into the 12 tribes of Israel and their families. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel before the Lord, all of them. We're talking about over a million people. And they were all chosen by lot. These tribes, I want you to think about this one of the ways that they would cast lots was they had a pan that looked kind of like what a wok looks like for us when we, if, you, if you cook any type of Asian food, any stir fry. And they would put the, the names of all the tribes of Israel on these stones and would set them in this wok and would spin them around. Then pray to God to reveal to them who they had called. And as he's doing this, the tribe of Benjamin falls out and he holds the stone in his hand. And then he does it again with the clans inside of the tribe of Benjamin. We'll we'll talk about why he does this in just a moment. It says in verse 20, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel before the Lord, and the tribe of Benjamin was chosen by Lot. Then he brought each family of the tribe of Benjamin before the Lord, and the family of Matrites was chosen. And finally, Saul of Kish was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord where he is. Where is he? Where is he? So they cast three sets of lots, and this is a supernatural act. And it's not for Saul, and it's not for Samuel. It's actually for the people. Samuel wanted to take all the guesswork out of what God had done. You see, it wasn't enough that if Samuel just said, this is who the Lord has appointed, all the people could speculate, and they could cast doubt at every turn. So what he does then is he takes something that is virtually impossible to narrow down outside of something supernatural. And he casts these lots, not once, not twice, but three times. And the lot falls to, no surprise of Samuel, Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. And when the people of Israel now are looking for Samuel to bring out Saul to present him as king, they can't find him. Very Anticlimactic, isn't it? The king of Israel! Where is he? Hey, you, you seen Saul? No, I haven't seen Saul. How about you? No, where'd he go? And the people can't find him on their own merit, and so they call out to God, and they say, hey, God, where is this man that you've appointed king of Israel? Where is Saul? And the Lord replied, he's hiding among the baggage. Do you think that's at all what the people were expecting? To be hiding among the baggage. You see, when when the 12 tribes of Israel would come together in an an occupancy like this, they would set up, they had specific rows and and, and rituals, responsibilities for how they were to establish their tents and and their tribes and their clans. And on the outskirts of all of that was the baggage, the excess, so it didn't get in the way of the people. 
Saul was not only in Mizpah, not in Mizpah where everybody was at, but he was literally outside of the camp hiding in a bunch of suitcases. Do you think that is how anyone expected the king of Israel to come into position? It wasn't at all what the people had expected. This is the man. Samuel said to all the people as they pulled Saul from the baggages, this is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in all Israel is like him. And they shouted, long live the king. This is new to them. This is actually an experienced expression that they picked up from other nations. It's not something they've done before. Verse 25 tells us, and Samuel told the people, listen to this, Samuel is no longer king. He's not the king. Now Saul is king, but Samuel's still in charge. He told the people what the rights and duties of a king were. You see, in most nations, the king tells the people what the rules and regulations are going to be. But here, Samuel, from the Torah, from the, the word of God, from the covenants, establishes his relationship between God and the people of Israel and the role of Saul as king to the people by laying out the rights and the duties of a king. And he wrote them down on a scroll and he placed it before the Lord commissioning Saul to the Lord. Then Samuel sent the people home again. And when Saul returned to his home at Gibeah, a group of men whose hearts God had touched went with him. You see, one of the, one of the, one of the hallmarks of a successful monarchy is to have, to have a, a, an army that will go to battle for you, to have Men and women in your corner that will fight on your behalf, that will stand up for you. And up until this point, Saul had no one. But as, as God had called and commissioned Saul into this role that he was not ready for, at least in his own merit, his own experiences, and by his own expressions, God is already preparing people to help in leadership. He changes the hearts of men that will go with Saul and will take up arms with Saul to fight off other nations and to preserve the people of Israel. You see, I'm not just telling you to cut off your friends that remind you of your past or keep you speculating about your future, but if you will call out to God and ask him to give you a community of people that will help you draw closer to God, he can change the hearts of the people that he surrounds you with that will be good for you, that will help you grow in God. Verse 27, but there were some scoundrels who complained. How can this man save us? And they scorned him and refused to bring him gifts. The most powerful four words in this text right here. But Saul ignored them. Shake it off. Shake it off. I think one of the greatest tactics and tools that the enemy uses today to keep us from the fullness of our faith isn't just our past or speculation about our future, but it's people. And not, not just people, but actually, the amount of real estate that you and I allow people to take up in our heads, it affects the way we think. It affects the way we act. It affects the way we react. It affects the way we spend our money. It affects the way we spend our time. It, it, it affects the way we invest ourselves. We get so caught up in what people think about us that the enemy literally uses our desire to please people to keep us from living out and experience the fullness of our faith. What is faith? Well, according to scripture, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. But as long as we're more concerned about people than we are the Prince of Peace, the enemy knows that we'll never live in the fullness of our faith. And if you're not living in the fullness of your faith, what, what do I mean by that? 
This seems like such a broad term, the fullness of your faith. Well, fullness, in the Bible, the word is shalom. And that word shalom, it means complete, without missing anything. It doesn't mean without struggles. It doesn't mean without trials, and it doesn't mean without obstacles, but it means that no matter what you're facing, where you're facing it, that you can experience absolute peace or fullness in that moment. And sometimes those moments are 20 seconds at a time. And I sat with my friend this week and he asked me a really hard question. In the confines of his office, he said, What is keeping you right now from the fullness of your faith? And I started talking about my past. And he said, Andrew, which one of those things that you're talking about or those people that you're talking about are in this room right now? And I couldn't answer him. And he said, so how is that keeping you from the fullness of your faith? When I started talking about all the things in the future, and he said, but but which one of those speculations is impacting you right now. What's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of your faith? Close your eyes and be present in the moment. Identify that heart change, that lab, that new heart. He says it affects everything. It affects the way you feel physically. It affects the way you think mentally. It affects the way you interact socially and it affects your spiritual life. And in this moment, identify, begin to identify how you physically feel because the way you physically feel impacts your moods and your relationships. And think about the thoughts that are going through your head. Start writing them down because what you're thinking about impacts the way you see the world and the way you see yourself. And, and then start to write, and he, he just literally, I started thinking through all these things. And then he asked this question that I got so frustrated with. He said, which one of those things is keeping you from the fullness of your faith right now? And the answer was none of them except this guy this guy right here I I had allowed the enemy to get a foothold I want to tell you something that's scary but should be incredibly encouraging the Bible says that Satan literally wishes to get a hold of each and every one of us to get a foothold to sift us like wheat look at this look at this write this down I'm going to jump here really quick it's not going to come up on the screen in Luke 22 In Luke 22, beginning in verse 31 and 32, write it down and go back to it later. This is a conversation between Jesus and Simon Peter. And here's what he says. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of us like wheat. But I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. That's the fullness of your faith. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. You see, the truth is that Satan wants to get a foothold of each and every one of us by reminding us of our past or or causing us to speculate our future. He keeps us from living in the fullness of the presence of our faith right now. But here's the cool thing. When we can surrender that, our own, even though it doesn't look at all like we thought it was going to look, when we can surrender our own ideologies and our own expectations to God before God with open hands and open hearts and say, God, all that I am and all that I have, all that I've ever done and all that I ever will do, I give it to you. The errors of my ways, I ask that you'd forgive me and the, the steps that I'm about to take, I ask that you'd lead me. When you can do that with open hands and open heart, you will experience the fullness of your faith and you'll be able to stand in that promise that Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but he won't be able to because of the fullness of your faith. And when you've gone through that trial, guess what? That's a part of your testimony. Your past is no longer a part of your identity. It's a part of your testimony that God will use to strengthen other people. Are you living the fullness of your faith this morning? If not, why not? Open hands and open hearts. It may not look at all like you thought it would look. You may be You may be here this morning, you say, Pastor, I've never experienced the fullness of my faith like you're talking about, this shalom, this peace, this peace that surpasses all understanding because I've been so caught up with what other people think. Who cares? My dad, my dad says a lot of funny things. Not as funny as Kevin Barnhill, but he says a lot of funny things. One of the things he taught me early on is he said, Andy, at the end of the day, you're not going home with them. So what does it matter? I guess my question is, when it comes to our relationships, 
Because that's really what today's text was all about, relationships. Relationship between Saul and Samuel, relationship between Samuel and God, relationship between Saul and God, relationship between Samuel and the nation of Israel, relationship between Saul and the nation of Israel, relationship between Saul and, well, himself. At the end of the day, there's no gray area where relationships are concerned. So here it is. I'm going to give it to you and then I'm going to get off the stage. There is no gray area. Either the people that you're surrounding yourself with, they're doing one of two things. They're either helping you grow closer to God or they're keeping you from the fullness of your faith. The people that you surround yourself with are either helping you grow closer to God or they're keeping you from the fullness of your faith. This next week, we're supposed to have some good weather and my wife is excited because she's gonna go outside. Her, one of her hobbies is yard work. She's going to get her shears and guess what she's going to start doing to our bushes and trees? She's going to start pruning them. Some of us are not living the fullness of our faith because we're hanging out to dead branches and it's time to start pruning back to deadhead to get rid of the past, stop speculating about our future and start surrounding ourselves with the supernatural Holy Spirit, His power, His presence and people that will help us experience the fullness of our faith. In Jesus' name. The band's going to come out right now, and we are going to continue celebrating and singing this celebratory anthem, this song. And my prayer is that as the words come up on the screen, that we would do more than just sing along, that we would take time to pause and reflect and surrender our hearts to God in this moment. Lord, I pray that as we worship you now in song, that we would be in tune to what you want to speak to our heads and our hearts. Father, I thank you for this text. As difficult as it might be, I thank you that your word, this truth, that it's entire and it's complete and that as it goes out, it doesn't return void. I thank you that as your word is read, that it comes alive and that as we apply it, it becomes active and alive in us. Lord, I pray today that we would be more than hearers of the word, but that we would be doers where we have been hanging on to our past or busy forecasting our future. Help us to prune those things from our lives and to focus on the fullness of our faith in our present state right now. In Jesus' name.